<clears throat> uh, Lord, we pray that you would uh, physically be present here, Lord. We know that you're omnipresent, but we pray that your presence would be manifest, would be tangible, that your word would be heralded today, that it would be, that it'd be uh, spoken and, and preached truthfully, and that it would be received. Lord, open up our ears, open up my mouth this morning. Jesus Christ, we beg of you. Amen. So in uh, the first week of Advent, uh, we are going with our, just to give you a little layout, we're going with our scripture readings that go with the lectionary, and we're looking at, it's a famous passage out of scripture commonly used for Advent in Isaiah 64. We're going to read verses 1 through 9, and Advent is a time of uh, expecting, Advent means the uh, expecting the arrival of a noble person, of a, of a king, of a monarch, of some sort. And so in the four weeks of Advent, we are preparing our hearts and we're expecting to get to Christmas in, in what we call the incarnation, in the, where we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. But in Advent, we are also simultaneously, that's because Jesus was already born 2,000 years ago. And so we're not just commemorating and the longing and expectation that uh, the people of God had in, in Jesus being born, but we're also uh, simultaneously expecting that Jesus will return again and he will surely judge the earth. And so we have a, a dual expectation in, in Advent or a dual longing, but there is a principle in play that all of our days should be with longing. And so let's read Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known among your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no ear, I'm sorry, from of old, no eye, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him joyfully who works righteousness. Those who remember you and your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned, and our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Amen. And so I want to look at a, well, I want to look at four things in this passage, but really, um, uh, as, we, as we get started in Advent, I don't want to miss 
the, oftentimes we come to Bible studies, we come to sermons, and we come uh, just out of, uh, of a, out of a religious expectation, out of we really do want to come and, and worship the Lord. But if we were to think in context of Isaiah here, this is towards the end of Isaiah, and uh, Isaiah is viewed as written in three separate parts, or at least there's three separate um, uh, distinct time periods that it was written in. And, and this was after the Israelites had been uh, come back and, and rebuilt the temple because it's mentioned earlier uh, a, few, a few chapters before about the rebuilding of the, of the temple. And what God often does is he doesn't want you to just think intellectually that, yes, I know that we should... Uh, have the presence of the Lord. I know that we should expect that God can come down and we intellectually know this. I think in a large sense, he wants us to feel it. Longing isn't something that you just intellectually get or that you think about. It's something you feel in your soul. And so I I don't really want to skip over what Isaiah is praying here. We, in a Christian circles, we hear all the time, run the heavens, and we're going to sing a song called Run the Heavens. And we, and, but look at that first verse. He says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And he's asking, what Isaiah is asking in this passage is not your common prayer, Lord, please bless this food and help us today. This isn't, you know, uh, your normal prayer of petition of please give me this or help me with that or Lord I sin please forgive me it's it's a it's a deep felt deep within his soul whenever you see that O in scripture it's a it's a loud it's a it's a heartfelt cry that Isaiah is 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 praying here and he's not praying that the Lord would come down and we'd rearrange a couple things and make place for him He's asking that God would violently tear open the sky and come down. And when you read scripture and people talk about rending their garments, they're not, uh, when they're, what kind of state are they in? They're in a state of anguish, they're in peril, they're in sorrow, they're crying out, and they're not like, uh, I didn't bring another shirt to emphasize this, but they didn't like nicely unbutton their shirt and say, God, please help us. They were ripping, they were rending their garments in anguish. And it was a desperate plea. It was, please come, please, like, and now, uh, Isaiah is not asking that the Lord would politely open the skies and come down at an appropriate time that is sometime in the near future. He's saying, oh, rend the heavens, come down, come down quickly. It's imminent. We need your help. There's, there's no other option. If I could do it, I would have done it by now. If I could have fixed the solution, there's a problem. We're living without your presence. There's all this sin. There's all this this anguish. There's all this problem. No one's looking after you. No one's looking for your presence. No one's obeying you. And he's not saying, please, please come down and help us. He's saying, this is imminent. We're in danger. Please help. We need you now. And so... 
as Isaiah praises, we often kind of just read it and skip over it, but he's asking, and he has a deep felt heart cry that we need God to miraculously intervene right now. Don't come down politely, interrupt my life, I'm stopping everything, tear open the sky, and get down here now. That's how important he is. <clears throat> That's how important uh, the, what Isaiah is praying. And so God is a wonderful storyteller, uh, dare I say, the best storyteller. And so if you were to just follow the storyline of where Isaiah and, and the people of God are right now, from the days of Genesis, from the very first people with Adam and Eve, when sin entered the world, that there was a promise of God that there would be one who would come who would crush the serpent, who would end evil, who would end death, and that everything that Adam and Eve, through their sin, through their fallen nature, transponded and gave to us, that we would later see be you know, flourishing in the earth, all the, all the wickedness, all the evil, all the murder, all, all, all the bad stuff, uh, God promises that there would be one that would be born to end it all. And he would come, and he would crush the serpent's head, who deceived Adam and Eve, who with his help brought evil into the world, and he would, in return, he would crush the serpent's head, and his heel would be bruised. And so there was, from the very first people who were created, there was this expectation that God was going to deliver his people, he was going to end evil, and he was going to defeat Satan. And uh, you would want it to be the next person that was maybe born. You would want it to be like, oh, God promised this to Adam and Eve. I hope it's relatively quick. I hope it's within a few generations. I hope it's uh, soon because as you see uh, in the first couple, pa- the first couple chapters of, of Scripture, evil just multiplies and there's murder and there's greed and, and there's all kinds of sexual immorality that happens and, and we see it uh, and we see evil still going today. And you start to see through the patriarchs, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and uh, uh, that, that these could be the people, and there's this longing expectation that someone's going to be born, and you get someone like Abraham that God raises up, and you think, this is our deliverer. And you know, the people who were the people of God of the day, they would have been thinking, this could be the deliverer. This could be the one who saves us, and it's not Abraham, and it's not Isaac, and it's not Jacob. And it keeps going on, and times go in and out, and, and evil, as, as God raises up certain people, uh, in, in, especially in the Old Testament, he raises up people, and certainly as a group of the people of God, their sins get less consequential, <laughs> and, and when he raises somebody up, and God raises up uh, Joseph and leads him and prophesied that they would go into Egypt. And what God wanted to do was put them in slavery for a few hundred years so that they would have a longing expectation and, and, and a, an apparent need that they would be obvious that we need someone to deliver us. We need a savior. They didn't, uh, 
they weren't in slavery and had been forced in labor camps to the Egyptians, and they didn't read in a book and say, yeah, I think we do need a, I think we do need a savior. This slavery thing isn't that great. You know what? I'm not enjoying it as much as I thought I would. <laughs> right? They, they didn't need to intellectually you know, uh, get to that point. It was a, God was bringing them to a place where they had nothing else to do except to cry out for a savior. They couldn't get out of captivity. They couldn't get out of slavery themselves. And so God raises up Moses, and, and it ends up, this isn't the guy. He does lead them out of slavery, and he brings them uh, to the, by the mighty hand of God in miraculous ways. God leads them through the hand of Moses to, out of Egypt, and next thing that they know is they're at the Red Sea, and there's nowhere to go, and the enemy's on their tailcoats, and they're surely going to die, Unless God does something, unless he rends the heavens, comes down, and saves them. And he does at the last minute. And, but in the end, uh, Moses dies and evil continues. And Joshua is raised up. And we, God brings his people of God through these waves of, is, of, of raising up deliverers in, in a lowercase sense, in a small sense. He delivers them for a time but doesn't ultimately deliver them. And then God, they go through the period of judges, which is an especially wicked time, and then, they, uh, 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 then God raises up David, you know, raises up a faithful king. And David could be the deliverer. This could be the guy that finally puts an end to these Israelites, their mass wickedness, they're worshiping false gods, they're sacrificing their children, they're doing all sorts of wickedness, and David brings about a ton of righteousness. He brings them, God brings them into the promised land beforehand uh, in Joshua, and, and God delivers the promised land to them, which they had been promised, which God says, you're going to get it, and then it's like God gives you, uh, it's like God gives you like a, a cake, and you go to grab it, and then you drop it, and you're like, oh, I didn't get it. <laughs> I didn't quite get it. Uh, you gave it to me. It was in my hands, and then I dropped it. And so as, as when, he's, when uh, Joshua leads the people of God into the promised land, they're given certain directives, but their sin eventually takes over, and their false worship of false gods takes over, and it destroys them until David's raised up, uh, until they have a faithful king who who leads them in righteousness. And we think, this is it. This is the guy who we've been waiting for. And at this point, it's been a couple thousand years. And this could be the guy that crushes the head of serpent, brings in the people of God to all the promises of God, and this is it. And then David goes ahead and commits murder and, and, uh, and, and sexual morality and adultery. And it turns out David's not the guy. And very quickly after that, the wickedness of Israel goes uh, uh, back way up. And so what God regularly does and what he wants to do is bring you to a point of not just intellectually reading scripture and saying, yes, I know I need a savior. I know I have sin. I know that I have issues. I know that I need a new life. I know that I uh, have to worship God better. I know I have to worship God rightly. He wants to bring you to a point of where you feel it deep in your soul. That's the point of faith. The point of faith isn't, actually, if I could just check the boxes and say, yeah, I know I need a Savior. Yeah, I know Christianity is true. Yeah, I worship Jesus. Yeah, I come to church. Yeah, I read my Bible. 
it's not a list of, of checks to go through that I intellectually understand. What God wants to bring you to is a point of, oh God, rend the heavens, come down. There's no other option. I'm out of options. I tried. I failed. I need you to open up the heavens, come down, and save me right now. Not, oh God, uh, hey, maybe you can come down and help me with this little problem I have. And I'm available Tuesday from 7 to 8 p.m. Could you please make room for that if you're not too busy? Well, we could reschedule. It's not that important if we have to. And so that's where, that's what we, in Advent, we can't, we can't even work ourselves up to get to that point. The, the thing about what God's doing is only God can do it. I, we could get up here and preach, and we can get up here and talk about it, and we could read the scriptures and, and, and tell you what's true, but we, from the pulpit, can't make you feel where, God's, where God wants to do with you. Only God can do that. So in a season of Advent, we, we celebrate and we commemorate a season of longing and expecting in hopes and in prayer that God will not just do this in lighting candles and changing the pyramids and, and, and preaching on certain things. We use those things in hopes that God will actually put a deep longing and expectation in our hearts, in our souls, that we cry out, oh God, rend the heavens and come down. And, and uh, going back to the, to the first verse, oh, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. And so when we're asking for the presence of God to come down, when we're asking God to come, it's not something we can control. It's not something we're saying, God, we want you to come down and we want you to work like this. He is an all-consuming fire. He is holy, perfect, good, just, merciful. And when he comes down, he comes down in a fire. He doesn't come down really any other way. <laughs> this would remind you of, of Moses on, in Exodus 20, 19, 20, when he meets Moses and the elders and the people of God on Mount Sinai when he gives his law in a flaming fire, in thunder, in, in earthquakes, in, in earth-moving things. And so when we're asking and we're longing and when God brings us to a point of expectation, it ought to be a point of expectation where God comes down as an all-consuming fire. And what what Isaiah is praying and, and saying in this passage is, first he says, to make known, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. Wouldn't that be awesome if we had this longing expectation and God moved in us and he met with us in such a way that our neighbors knew that this is the true God, Amen. that they saw mighty and awesome works. We, what I think is a problem for me, and if it's a problem for me, it's probably a problem for you, is I expect God to move in a way that makes me seem very nice and respectable and that people respect me and like me. But I don't see that in Scripture a whole lot. I don't see that when God comes down and, and people like you more or people think you're more respectable or he, he tidily cleans up your sins and, and helps you push them 
into the corner so they're a little bit more manageable. I don't see that very much in Scripture. I see the expectation that when God comes down, he comes down with fire, with loud trumpets, with earthquakes, with, with, with boisterous booms, and he comes down as, as a, in a holy fire to make known his name among the nations, among his adversaries, through his people. And that's uh, a, a major goal of God, and that's one thing I love about Christmas, is that the whole world stops, whether you're pagan whether you're Muslim, whether you're Hindu, largely, nearly the whole world stops to celebrate, maybe not deeply in their hearts, but to celebrate Jesus' birth. He is doing this for the last 2,000 years to transforming the earth that, that his name would be na- made known. Uh, uh, funny little anecdote. I, didn't, I talked about this with my wife a little bit. We went to a concert last night in Columbus where there was like, I don't know, like 10,000 people? Anybody know that? 10,000? And seven? 17,000. 17, That's a little, I'm way off. I didn't, I stopped counting at 6,000, so I just, uh. and <clears throat> maybe one guy, one guy made mention that he was raised by like a pastor or a worship pastor or something, and, but largely the group is pagan. These are pagan people singing Christmas songs that worship Jesus where 13,000 people, I don't know how deep their hearts are uh, or whether they're Christians or whether they're aligned with the Lord, <coughs> singing Christmas songs that are praising our Lord Jesus Christ. And this happens through the whole world. And I think it's uh, what I see and, and what hits me is that, number one, God is mocking the world to, to show how powerful he is that even pagans people who don't worship Jesus are going to stop and worship Jesus. And, and there really is, I don't think there's like a spirit of Christmas, but, the, but God is really working in the earth during Christmas to convert people and, and draw people to, to Jesus. But also, he is just making his name known. And this is only 2,000 years since he was born, died, and was resurrected. Think about in another thousand years, as, as the world continues to be transformed under, under God's sovereignty of, of the nations that, that don't even in a pagan way worship God, come and, and worship Jesus during Christmas. I love it. And so uh, even the, the pagans are, are knowing that they could worship God, they could sing Christmas carols, they can sing Christmas songs that worship God, uh, and that it, it's... Everybody enjoys it. And so uh, what God's doing when he comes down in his presence to make his name known, and going into verse 3, he says, When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. Verse 4, From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. And so the, uh, in, in these prayers, in this prayer of Isaiah, it's something that we can pray for. We want God. We should have a, a longing, a deep-felt longing expectation that God would come down and move in mighty ways, that he would come down and quake the mountains, that he would move them, that he would come down in fire and light something on fire. 
light me on fire, all right? Light us on fire. And, and we can't get ourselves there. We can't do that work. If it is, we could boast. Only God can get you to that point. And, and but, uh, and uh, what I love, uh, one of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 69, where David is using a metaphor. He's saying he's like, he's swimming in these deep waters and he's been swimming. There's no foothold. There's nowhere for him to, to, to rest. He has to keep swimming. He has to stay afloat. And many of us feel like that sometimes. We're just trying to stay afloat and we're doggy paddling and we're like, yeah, I could do this for a while, but you do it for a while and you're like, I'm getting tired and you're like, I can do this and you motivate yourself and you're still doing it. And, and David says in the Psalm that I've been doing this for so long, I can't go on anymore. I'm going to drown. I'm running out of energy and I've been yelling. I've been screaming, God, please help me. And you haven't come yet. And so God's not obligated to answer our prayers when we say, oh, rend the heavens and come down. Sometimes I believe God is waiting for us and waiting and working in us so that we would have a deeper and more true heartfelt longing and expectation for him. Sometimes he will give us something that we were promised and then he'll take it away. I don't know every reason. But part of it is so that our faith would be in him alone, that our trust would be in him alone, that our expectation would be in him alone. And in those moments, you know, looking to Job, that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And sometimes we're out there swimming, we're trying to stay afloat, and we are screaming, God, come down and save me. And he's not answering your prayer. And he wants you to keep screaming, and keep praying to build up a deeper longing expectation that only he can save you. There's nobody else. And so in, in Psalm 69, David's talking about all the enemies are encompassed around him, and unless God, unless he comes and saves him, he's doomed. And that's where God wants us. That's, that's the greatest place to be. The greatest place to be when the Israelites came out of Egypt was at the Red Sea, surrounded by the Egyptians. And, and they cried out, you know, God, what have you done? And they, they complained against Moses, but they, would have, they should have turned around towards the Egyptians and said, ah, we got you now. <laughs> Watch what God's going to do, because <laughs> we can't do anything. <laughs> and they should have been like, God, here we go. <laughs> and, but that's what God does. His timing is always perfect. He brings you right to the edge. He, his, he never lets you go over. He never takes you farther than you can, than, than, uh, I don't say he never takes you farther than you can go. He does that very often. He never takes you farther than he doesn't want you to go, which is always farther than you want to go. And so, and so God will leave you longing and expecting and crying out to him, sometimes in certain situations for years. The Israelites the people of God, as, as we move through Scripture, and they had David, they had the patriarchs, they had multiple other people, or had this built up, this longing, the expectation for a Messiah for thousands of years. And it was built into their people that they're waiting and they're longing and they're expecting a Savior. 
And sometimes they strayed away from that and they worked out, they tried to work out their own thing and, and it didn't go so well for them. And certain times God is, is, is bringing them back. And so it says there in, in verse 4 that from of old that no, essentially no eye has heard, no eye has heard, no, no ear has heard, no eye has seen. A God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. This is who God acts for. For people who are waiting for him, for longing for him, expecting him to work. Verse 5. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. And in our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? Or another rendering of uh, that verse is, or in your ways is continuance of that we might be saved. <clears throat> and so what God is doing, what he's, what he's saying here is that, that as the people of God are waiting, they're still working righteousness. They haven't rejected him. There's a longing expectation for him. They need him to work. But what is, what, is, what is Isaiah crying out for? If you look to the first couple chapters of Isaiah and the way that God had instilled certain sacrificial systems to remind them and atone for their sins in, in the temple, that they would do animal sacrifices, but the priest had to be pure, and they didn't have any pure priest, so they can't make any sacrifices, and therefore there's no atonement. And so they need God to come down and deliver them from their sins. And uh, surely Isaiah is lumping himself in that, but he's talking about a people of God who have gone astray, who have gone after false gods, who have trusted in idols, who have worshipped uh, worshipped God through wickedness, who had, who had said that they were doing worshipping the real God, but were really worshipping him in, in wickedness. And Isaiah is crying out, it's like, look where these people have gone. We have been a long time in our sin. We have been deep in it. And how are we going to get out? We can't just instill a program. <clears throat> we, can't just, we can't just put a system into play that's going to generationally save us and turn us around from our sin. It's never going to happen. There's never going to be enough accountability. There's never going to be enough safeguards. There's never going to be a system that replaces the active presence of God in our lives who comes down in his holiness to deliver us. There's never going to be anything that we can truly trust in besides God. That's going to save us from our sins. In verse 6, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. This is a, a passage some people love to talk about because the English here cleans it up pretty well, and the polluted garment is a woman's menstrual rag. And so that's what we have to offer for, to God. That's where we've come, outside of Christ. Even if, if we're in the church, we come to church regularly, we read our Bibles, when we work in our own selves, when we try to work it in ourselves and we don't have this longing, this expectation, we don't want God to come down as an all-consuming fire, we are trying to offer God our polluted garments, our filthy, filthy righteousness, which is nothing to God. He doesn't want our used handkerchiefs. <laughs> he doesn't want used tissues. <laughs> he doesn't want 
uh, he doesn't want that. That's not what he wants. He wants us to have a longing expectation and faith and, and calling out to him. And it says, continuing in verse 6, We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. I think if anyone uh, has thought about it for a minute and thought about just how sin works in our lives and how evil works in our lives, it's, it works pretty well. <laughs> it's going pretty thoroughly through, and it's, it's not, uh, we don't have to try really hard. It's not like, man, uh, our iniquities, our sins, our evil deeds are trying to drive us away really hard, and we've really put up a good fight. No, we are like leaves. Blowing and the wind just takes it away. And that's what our sin is like. And God wants us to see that. Not that we would try harder, not that we would work in our own righteousness, that we would say, Ren the heavens, come down. We need your salvation. But Isaiah goes on in verse 7 there is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. What are we to do when, uh, let's go on, continue in verse 7. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. What do we do when God takes his presence away from us, when we have a dry season and we're not even rousing ourselves? We're not even in praying, uh, you know, empty prayers of, of God saving us. What do we do? This is where we're at. This is what God wants to call our attention to, that we don't even make ourselves want to long for God's presence, for his expectation. We don't even, we can't even get ourselves energized enough to pray, God, come down and run the heavens and really mean it. We can't even rouse ourselves to get to a point where God wants us to be. Only God can do that. And so he's working in us this longing, this, this expectation that we can't even produce, that we want him to come down as an all-consuming fire and take away all of our sin. He wants, us to take, he wants us to long and expect to him that he would make us holy people, and he will have to rouse us. He will have to be the one that wakes us up. He will have to be the one that works in our spirit to do it. And that's our trust, and that's where our faith lies. Verse 8, but now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. And he pleads, be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. And so, obviously the passage goes on, and you can read that, but where it leaves us, Today is where uh, we end is that it's just Isaiah pleading and saying, please just don't leave us here. We need you to come down. We want you to, to come down in your presence like a, like a fiery furnace blowing down, burn up our iniquities. We can't even rouse ourselves, but Lord, we're asking to please come down. And that's what we're uh, I think the Lord would draw us to a, in a season of Advent is not that we could work it up ourselves, not that we could just somehow work up our own expectation 
we could certainly, God wants us to read the scripture and continue working in righteousness, but a waiting on God and is an expectation for God that we want to see him move. We want to see his presence here. We want to see it in, in my life and in, in my family's lives and our church's lives. We want to see it in everybody. And there's not a, there's no amount of preaching. There's no amount of, of you trying to work it in yourself where it's going to happen. Where Isaiah leaves us in this passage is, please don't be terribly angry with us. You're our father. We're the clay. You're the potter. Mold that into us. And that's our, our prayer this morning. And as we, as we lead to worship and, 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 uh, and hear Josiah speak and we fellowship together and in the season of Advent to be a deep, heartfelt cry of, Lord, please don't leave us in our iniquity. Please don't hide your face from us any longer. We don't have any other options. There's nowhere else to go. If the Lord doesn't go with us in our presence, there's nowhere to go. We can't just pick up and, and go where the Lord wants, thinks we want him, where, the Lord, where we think the Lord wants us to go and hope that he comes along with us. We have to be longing and expecting and waiting, and we can't go anywhere until his presence is with us until he comes down and rouses us, until he works righteousness in us, until he's working in us. And so, let's pray. Lord, as we come and, and worship you in, in song this morning, we pray that you would be present, that your manifest presence would be here, that you would burn up our iniquities, that you would uh, work in us a deep desire and expect, expectation to make Jesus Lord, to come down, that you would work in us, that you would be present, and, and that you would put that heartfelt, that deep heartfelt desire in us and our souls for you and for you alone. Amen.